What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's December, folks. Time to figure out what we haven't forgiven ourselves for or somebody else for this year. When you're a 10-year-old girl named Aggie, it's hard to put down the burden when the family house burns and she'd set a small campfire coincidentally. Aggie goes into hiding, communing with nature in the trees above, while the bloodhounds search for her below. This scene was created by our author guest, Cheryl Gray Bostrom, in her novel, Sugarbirds, published by She Writes Press. We'll talk now with Cheryl as she does what she does, watching nature, seeing life. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you, Diane. Good morning. Good to talk with you today. Good morning. Lovely to have you. Congratulations on the American Fiction Awards for this beautiful book, Literary Fiction, General Fiction, and Cross-Genre Fiction. Well done. Um, that's Thank just you. That great. was a thrill. When you, Thank you. I was um, excited envisioned, about it. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, you, as well you should be. Well, when you envisioned Sugarbirds, um, did you write it with anyone specifically in mind? And now that it's out and so well-received, can you tell us who it turned out to be for? Well, initially I knew that it would be for my granddaughter. Um, that was my goal um, at, at the outset. But it didn't really start like that. It started as a prompt uh, in a writing class that I took um, because I was switching from um, long-form and short-form nonfiction to fiction. So I was in a cohort of fiction writers, and I wrote a sketch about a girl in a fire. And um, I thought that was the end of it. And then I started hearing from um, from other writers in the class and from the instructor and people writing me privately saying, hey, we really want to know where this goes and, you know, take it, see what you can do. And at that point, I was just still getting my feet wet in writing fiction. And and uh, so it was a, a, a great a, a great joy to hear that it was received like that. But, um, but as I started mm-hmm. writing the story... Um, I realized that there were elements of my own experience that were coming in and, of course, my great love for the natural world I wanted to offer to a granddaughter who was at that time just one and um, that would be around with her and would offer her elements of my life and things that I thought would be valuable for her as she moved forward. So you've written two other books, nonfiction books, and I wonder if you feel as though um, at this point in your life, you have more to say, more to offer. I, I do. You know, I'm, I'm in my 60s, and I think that uh, writing fiction is a beautiful way to synthesize truths that I've learned throughout my life. And, um, and when you can in, insert, insert memories and yet fictionalize them, uh, you have just a lot more opportunity to, you know, to, to make sense of the things that have happened in life. And then for those who are coming behind you to, you know, to engage the conversation, in this case, in this book, about things like guilt and about uh, shame and about suffering and about resilience through all that. And um, I have an awful lot of joy and have experienced a lot of trauma and... Uh, and so for me, I, I just guess I wanted to set that out there as possibilities for other people, and particularly in this time where so many have suffered so deeply. Well, it couldn't be better poised to help with healing for sure. Um, I'm going to give a short bio. You live on a bench of land called Goose Ridge on a farm uh, that a friend dubbed Three Setters. It's rolling ground that overlooks Washington State snow-capped Cascade Range forests, fed streams, 
ponds and acres of pasture. Um, you uh, keep company with Gordon Setters, wild animals, uh, and the seasons unfurl. I'm reading now from a bio that you wrote. Creation speaks to you daily, and you try to capture it also in your photography. Um, I, I, I can't help but notice, too, um, your writing and photos, you say, have traveled, too. Your columns have regularly landed on publications ranging from womenoffaith.com and upper room disciple, disciplines to American scientific affiliations, God and Nature magazine, and various newspapers and journals. I also, um, you know, noted, you know, you have a strong Writers Guild, Red Buds Writers Guild, and this now makes three books. The first was The View from Goose Ridge, HarperCollins 2001, Children at Promise, Nine Principles to Help Kids Thrive in an At-Risk World, 2003, uh, with Dr. Tim Stewart, and now Sugar Birds, a novel from She Writes Press in 2021. I, I think that, you know, I felt there was such a richness in the um, experience of Aggie, the 10-year-old girl, who accidentally or you know, at least as far as she's concerned, has caused the fire that ruined her family home. And I wondered if there was a significance to the main character being 10 years old, kind of pre-adolescent, pre-ripening, a time when you might absorb a lot of shame or blame. Did you purposefully create a character in that uh, age point in the, in her life as a young girl. I did. 10 years old was really significant for Aggie because she's old enough to have the skill sets that her dad had taught her and that he'd schooled her in the in survival and in tracking and her dad of course is an arborist and a former you know Alaska Forest Service uh guy and and so she's pretty skilled and she's pretty capable. Um and yet Cognitively and emotionally, she's not uh, as developed as she will be in, in the surge of growth in, in the coming years for her. And so she had to be 10 to draw the assumptions she did. You know, she, she accidentally lights this fire, and she watches her parents carried out of her burning home. And she flees mm. to the forest that is so familiar to her and where she really feels that she has her only friends because her mother's mental illness has isolated her and isolated the family. And and so when she heads out there, she believes that she is... Um, is going to be hunted, that they're going to capture her, they're going to put her in juvie or jail or whatever, you know, from her limited knowledge hearing on the school bus about that. And so she she can't grasp the notion as this 10-year-old girl that these throngs of people who are hunting for her um, actually want to bring her home and that they love her, that she is beloved. I mean, she, her worldview turns upside down, her self-concept becomes one of deep shame and grief and guilt, and she believes that that she's being hunted and that nobody could possibly love her, from the milkman that she spies on and sees delivering milk to neighbors to, of course, you know, her her brother, um, who is an autistic savant and works at a nearby dairy. And so she hides, Mm -hmm. and she's very skilled at hiding from everybody. Well, she deems herself unworthy and unlovable, and she finds a sanctuary in nature. Um, you know, in the um, intro of you, it's clear that you have a spiritual component. There's a spiritual component to the book. Um, and I wonder if you really, you know, identify nature as being um, a sort of a sense of a, a kind of a new religion, a religion that's perhaps more accessible. Anyone can go out in nature and have these transcendent feelings of, you know, reverberation of something greater than us, and there's no hierarchy to it. There's no church. There's no, um, you know, but there is a sense of absolution, a sense of, you know, sin or shame being able to dissolve as you grow healthier again in nature, 
Do you think that nature, you know, stands in in some way or becomes a new form of spirituality? I think for many and for a lot of, of folks who are picking up sugar birds, um, nature uh, nature is a god to them. Um, it's not for me. For me, nature, and as a Christ follower, n- nature is an illustration of the character of God that's that's full of metaphor. And when I when I was a child, um, and really felt like my survival was up up to me in a way because I'm I'm the eldest of five and. Um, we, like Aggie in the story, had a mother with some mental illness issues, and we were heartbroken children. And and yet, mm-hmm. I grew up on the Olympic Peninsula, where um, you know our town was sandwiched between the Olympic Mountains and the Strait of Juan de Fuca, and we could practically step out our door and be in wild country, be in these deep, beautiful forests or along these creeks and streams. And my grandparents both were were um, very well, very knowledgeable about the natural world and were always talking about the birds and teaching us trees and teaching us, you know, these beautiful aspects of nature. But it wasn't until I realized that these were all speaking to me not as entities into themselves, nature not as a God into itself, but as created illustrations of God's love for me and of my belovedness. And so in a place where I had, I didn't have, I had an absent father and had a mother that uh, was not able to convey that to me, I finally was able to experience belovedness of God through the natural world. And so for a lot of people, the natural world does become their church. But, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I would say mm-hmm. it's, it's, the, it's the artwork, it's the illustration of God, and He definitely reaches for me and speaks to me most clearly, you know, through His Word and through nature. Mm-hmm. And did you know how to track and do all this stuff? I mean, there was so much naturalist information in the book um, about what to eat, surviving in nature. Um, I mean, I, I thought you, you must be very knowledgeable, uh, perhaps for your grandparents, um, in the ways of nature. And were you and your siblings also, this had, did, did you have this experience, this firsthand experience? Yeah, we did. It was, and it was a lot of fun to uh, it was a lot of fun to be able to incorporate those into the book. Um, I had one sister in particular with whom I um, we climbed those trees. You know, if you know Douglas fir trees, they are mm-hmm. exquisitely exquisitely formed for climbing high. You know, and these trees can end up two hundred feet tall. You know, if you get some of the big old ones, and although they've usually self pruned from the bottom, uh, you get you know you get the hundred foot trees, and they have these marvelous branches that can just that just call you up into them and that it was easy for Aggie to hide in those and and uh and so my sister and I um you know uh, probably in the recklessness of grief or the recklessness of sorrow and just looking for the exhilaration to we climbed to dangerous heights i mean we went as we you know, we on I can at least think of a few occasions where we, we climbed as high as Aggie did. And uh, mm-hmm. the difference between what, what we did and in the story is that in the story, Aggie, as she was learning to climb, had her father under her. And um, this wanders from your question a little bit, but but I was struck as, and I, I didn't even realize it when I was writing it, but when you when you're loved, when you when you have your father under you, you know, and in my case, Father God, for Aggie, it was her father, for Celia, the the co-protagonist, it was her father, um, you behave mm-hmm. differently than when you're alone. And, and, uh, and so when Aggie loses her father and when Celia loses her father, um, those girls go on a different trajectory and their worldviews shift. But but back to your question about the natural world, I did check facts because there were things that I had always operated on as if I, I just 
I just knew them from childhood. But then when I started writing them, I thought, okay, so I'm looking at these ants, for instance, or the bones or stripping the bones. And then I, I did just, I did corroborate all that information. <laughs> so, so I, it's yeah. legit. Well, I mean, I think if anyone, um, including me, uh, is into nature and learning about um, the interaction of nature and birds and um, wow, it was just a great like kind of scientific exploration. I really enjoyed it um, from a naturalist viewpoint. And also the sense of like a new girl power. There's a couple of characters here. Aggie is, you know, a protagonist, but the story is actually told through Celia, who is an older girl. But they're both anomalous in terms of being girly girls. They're not raising, you know, they're not being, you know, dressed up with their dolls. No, they're out climbing trees like to 60 feet. They're um, doing math problems, um, you know, into like Fibonacci numbers, Um, uh, you know, like really very atypical doing um, 60 meter dash and a long distance running. Celia is a runner. Aggie is also, not, she's quite a tomboy. And um, I think that, you know, this is a fascinating kind of new girl power um, character that's coming into our realization that girls, many girls, actually were not raised or grew up with the so-called like feminine identifiers and actually grew up outside alongside of boys um, with um, with a lot of, you know, physical activity. So um, we have to pause for a commercial break, but when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Cheryl Gray Bostrom, author of Sugar Birds. It's a fascinating read, so many levels to it, and we'll continue to find out what they are. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Cheryl Gray Postrom talking about her new novel, Sugar Birds, published by She Writes Press, and the development of some anomalous kind of kids, um, kids who are kind of outliers, Cheryl, uh, outliers in the sense of being nerds, math nerds, um, you know, girls that are not girly girls, and a particular boy, Burnaby, who is the younger brother of Aggie. Um, oh no, the older brother of Aggie, sorry. And she, um, Aggie has her own, you know, affinity with nature we talked about that sets her apart. Burnaby is ordering, right? Because he's on the autism spectrum and ordering is important. He's classifying bones. He's very, um, you know, knowledgeable about birds, um, all manner of flora and fauna. Then there's a connection with Celia, the older girl who um, is also uh, abandoned by her mom, who's left her to go off to, to work at a project in remote distance, and her father's gone off to work on an oil rig. 
Um, these people are connected through their location, but they're also connected by being kind of outliers. Um, talk to us about these new girl power and also the power of Burnaby, ultra-sensitive. Mm. Yes, these these girls really um, are Northwest girls, and there are, there are a lot of us, and I... I was not raised as a girly girl, nor were any of my siblings, and um, engagement with the outdoors and a very physical lifestyle is is really very familiar to most of my friends, most of those I know, and uh, and those of us who were raised, you know, in the rural Pacific Northwest. Um, and and I also thought that that was important too for readers who will be you know who will be reading this book whether they're urban or rural to to realize that there are other ways to experience girlhood with a lot more freedom and without the societal restrictions that in the past have been put on young women and and I love that I love that um, one mm-hmm. thing is that the story the story talks about the, practically a character in the story is this wild country, this wilderness. And when Aggie runs into the forest, she's fleeing not only into a physical wilderness, which is this this wild riparian corridor that is flanked by farms, but also foothills and mountains and national forests. But she, um, when she flees into this wilderness, she's also going into an emotional and spiritual wilderness. And Celia, Burnaby... Um, a, a boy, a young man that Celia gets involved with, Cabot, they're all part of the search team for her. And when they're hunting for her, they are also experiencing their own emotional, spiritual wildernesses. And so Burnaby, mm-hmm. as an autistic savant who has lost his parents in this fire, uh, really connects with Celia because they both have this shared interest in mathematics, they have a shared interest in the in in nature and in birds. Celia, who has come from Houston, has, has is staying with her grandmother, who's a wildlife rehabilitation expert. And so Celia has developed skills with with um, saving raptors in particular. So she and Burnaby have Mm -hmm. a lot in common, but Celia identifies with him most because of their loss and because of this wilderness they find themselves in. But it's really interesting the way these girls, uh, the way the four young characters do handle, um, handle their grief and handle their suffering. So Aggie, who's been... Um, taught by her dad to go into the woods and look for the father's song and and then sketch it, has been trained to sketch these nests of wild birds. So when she goes into the forest, she is grappling with and fighting against what her father has taught her about God, and she's really wrestling with spiritual issues. Mm -hmm. Celia, on the other hand, is wrestling with her wilderness by... Uh, retaliating. She wants vengeance against her dad who's left her. She's really angry and she, as a girl who loves science, believes if something can't be proven, then it really doesn't exist. Um, Burnaby, as you say, is this very ordered young man who is, um, you know, who's on the spectrum um, and who has learned from his dad, who is also Aggie's dad, about this God, understands about resurrection, but he tries to do his own resurrections. So while his mom is in the hospital, he continues to build these birds and try to reconstruct their lives. And there's one scene in the story where Burnaby's talking to Celia, and and she has discovered his workshop where he has all of these beautiful reconstructions, these skeletal reconstructions. And and he's he's painting the picture of this swan who's whose mate has been killed in the road. And he flicks this um, fugitive paint across the bird's breast. And so he says, what, what do you mean? What is this fugitive paint? And he says, with time, the color will fade. You know, and he, he says, with time, you know, he says it's changeable as pain. And that, that 
pain heals, but he's he's trying to be an instrument of healing in this, and he's a very interesting character, a very endearing character. And then the fourth yes. character, whom you meet later in the book, Cabot, um, really really um, deals with his own pain, his his wilderness of pain um, as as a victim, and then all, with all of the the accompanying junk that goes with that. So, you know, it's it's interesting for readers yeah. to explore and then to take a look at their own. You know, what do you do with pain? You know, what do I do with pain? What do we do with suffering? Right. So the fugitive red is also it's cadmium. So it's for yeah, it's um, it's it's so red is one of the fugitive colors. In other words, when it's flicked onto a particularly paper um, absorptive cotton rag, it will be very strong at the beginning, and then it fades. So the fugitive part is the fading out. Um, and I did think that that was one of the strongest scenes in the book. I loved this um, symbol symbolism uh, of Barnaby, you know, flicking this paint, and then, and of course, it's the color of blood. It's the color of heart. It's the color of yeah, pain. You know, so um, mm-hmm. you know that witnessing that Celia does with him is very primal. You know, you really get a kind of um, a sense of their loss, their abandonment, and their bonding. I mean, to share something like that, I will mention that for those listeners who are not in the Pacific Northwest or even near a nature preserve, um, living as I did for a long time in, in New York City, I mean, Central Park, you can basically find this same stuff uh, happening. <laughs> there's coyotes, there's, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. there's, you know, there, there are foxes, there are all these creatures um, that can teach you, um, and, and certainly birds, there was always the mating of the hawks and the eagles, and I mean, the sightings, and, and you know, this can happen in a microcosm um, wherever you live, particularly if you're not a kid that's on your iPad 24-7, so I thought this was just a refreshing window, um, given that a lot of kids really don't have this window on the world um, and are not growing up this way, but potentially could enter this world through other means. And, um, you know, whether that is even painting or song or, you know, other um, artistic pursuits, you are also a photographer. And I wondered um, how your photography, you know, how capturing visual beauty uh, figures into your writing and your ability to create, yeah, I mean, a setting that's almost a character. Hmm, that's a good question. You know, I don't think in, in a linear fashion, I think in pictures. And so then I have to try to assimilate that and and form them into words and put things into a line. So when I'm outside, which I am every day, um, there are so often these, and usually it, it stems from an interplay of light and dark, which of course has all kinds of spiritual implication and so forth manifested in the in the physical world but when i when i see a scene and i've always got a camera with me but when i see a scene that catches me i mean sometimes i'll i'll gasp audibly because it will strike me i'll take the picture and then oftentimes it's afterwards that what you describe as this primal connection, say, between Celia and Burnaby or this primal experience, this visceral primal connection with the natural world will begin to make sense to me or I will be, interpret it, not always at the moment, but after the fact. And then I try to put it into words. Um, but it's a, it's a living, breathing expression of love out there. You know, there's, you know, there's the you know the cycles of life, the the intricacies from the cellular cellular level to you know to the more the grander panoramic landscape, and um, yeah, it's just it connects with me at a bodily level first. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's just fascinating the you know the translation of this experience um, that you're having viscerally into words. Um, I love that this is your your process. Um, 
you know, multidimensional. You, as you say, it happens all at once, and then you tease it out and find the meaning of it later. Mm-hmm. I, I really hope people are listening to this in terms of ways of, uh, yeah, absorbing the world, uh, the natural world, and, um, and its impressions. I wonder, Cheryl, when you are talking about these pristine settings and the, not just the beauty of it, but the profundity of it and the kind of meaning and the lesson-making of it, what about then the shadow side of nature at this point that is man-made and the whole threat of climate change? It's not necessarily addressed in the book because it's preserved as a kind of a life force. But there is that. And what do you make of that kind of, this kind of phenomenon and the shadow side of nature and what's going on now? I think that's an important question. And I've said this, I've given this illustration um, previously, but I, I think it's a big one. Um, and it's one that if we watch for it, we'll see it. Um, the conditional world, the conditional world, the conditional nature of the world is very evident in the life cycles. You've got, you've got the bloom of spring, you've got the advance of summer, and you've got the decline and the fall and into death in, in, in the autumn and in the winter season. But then you have a renewal and you have a rebirth, which of course spiritually for me, you know, has, you know, dovetails with my faith in Christ, but it also, um, it, it also illustrates what we can expect in our lives as well, and that's that there is pain, there is death, there is suffering. And right now, and for a, for a long time, we've had a climate in which we're seeing, we're seeing shifts. And depending on one's faith persuasion, if you believe that that's up to human beings to solve, it's devastating, it's terrifying, because... Mm-hmm. Um, I think intrins- intrinsically, we all we all know that this is something bigger than us, and yet there's a call to stewardship. You know, there's a call to care for the earth and to do what we can. But mm-hmm. I believe that um, I I believe from you know for, and have for fifty years that we're not alone in that, and that there's a God who made this and who cares about this this earth, and who is is always in the process of healing, you know, so even so much so that even in, in, in our bodies, that if we will get out of the way and do things that care for our bodies, there's healing intrinsic to us. But here's the illustration that I was going to give. Um, do you remember when the Exxon Valdez cracked up in Alaska? Um, of course. It, it spilled, uh, spilled a, a huge amount of oil. I think there were 250,000 birds killed. It affected all kinds of wildlife. And I was just bereft when that happened. And I was talking mm-hmm. with my grandfather who said, uh, he said, you know, Cheryl, he said, even during World War II, he said there was a, there was a lot of, there, there were a lot of petroleum spills, you know, and, and, I don't think I mentioned that um, my grandfather's family and that whole side were Alaska pioneers. So he was he was raised in that pristine country, and uh, and so he said that even even during World War II, he said there was a lot of damage to the environment. He says, but it will heal. Watch, it will heal. And so as time passed, it did heal. And that doesn't mean that there. That doesn't mean that you cast it aside, you know, as just, oh, well, God will take care of that. You know, that would be foolhardy and, and irresponsible mm-hmm. um, be, because mm-hmm. we're to be stewards. But we aren't alone in it. There's, there's a healing that's built into the earth and that's built into the world that is phenomenal. And, you know, when we had, we had a tremendous heat wave here in the Pacific Northwest that is unlike any we had ever experienced. And it was right during nesting season. And we watched as swallows, um, as swallows chose boxes only in the shade this year. We had, we have several boxes right. that aren't shaded and, and they didn't pick them. We had birds that built nests, um, in, in areas that when the temperature reached 108 degrees here and those eggs only survived to about 104.5 degrees, uh, were able to hatch eggs, whether it was through insulation of their bodies or the way they chose their nest sites or whatever, that you would never have believed that those, those 
creatures could survive. But there's this healing and this help built into the natural world that if we look for it, we'll see it. And it can give us huge hope to be willing to engage the battle because we're not alone in it. And I love that. Yeah. No, I I like that too. Um, Rarely do we talk about the allies that we might have if we engaged in the process and um, maybe it's there for the asking. That's just such a lovely concept in terms of our human stewardship of the world. We're speaking with Cheryl Gray Bostrom. We're going to take a short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Cheryl Gray Bostrom, author of Sugar Birds. And we've started talking about the special gifts of children, the gifts from nature, we're willing to receive those messages from birds, trees, and the cycle of life. Um, but I thought when we spoke about Burnaby, Cheryl, a couple of things, not just this exquisite um, symbolism that he mixed the red paint with the fugitive red with his tears. He used the tears for his liquid. Mm. Um, it's just incredibly poetic and beautiful as are many of the scenes in this book, um, you have, of course, then these interesting names, Burnaby. There's a fire, a transformational fire. Um, So, of course, I had to look it up. And Burnaby is an Old Norse name, uh, meaning fighter's estate. Uh, The grandmother that you mentioned who does um, heal and, um, you know, nurture birds back to health, raptors and other kinds of birds. Her name is Mender. Um, Menders, <laughs> Menders we know, uh, you know, they're, they're, they are mending. They are bringing healing energy. They have psychic power, maybe. Um, they, you know, carry on for others. Uh, and there were just so many interesting names in the book, and Aggie included. So Aggie, her full name was Agate, um, which is a stone that, you know, its, its heritage is that it transforms negative energy into positive energy. Um, they were just kind of on and on it went, these, these intriguing names. Um, I just wondered how much focus you gave to the names and to the meanings, and does it originate in the naming of creatures in nature? Oh, I love that question. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, well, let's start with Aggie. I, I guess a- Aggie's name, Agate, was intended to draw attention to the parallel between Aggie's mother and and Aggie, in that they were both risk takers. Aggie's mother, as a child and as a young woman, and uh, be- before she and her husband had children, would climb these cliffs and go into the waves to find these agates that she loved so much. And then once she had children um, and once she started developing her uh, manic depressive symptoms, but even before then, as a parent, 
she became more fearful in guarding her kids and and believed that she could protect her children from harm, which was shown that even in the church setting, her little girl Aggie wasn't always safe and that safety, if parents think that they can keep their children safe, um, then they're going to be disappointed. And again, then mm-hmm. coming back around to realizing that they aren't alone in keeping their children safe, that God cares about these kids as he cared about Aggie in the woods. Um, but but Agate, um, her her name then... Aggie had to do with these agates that her mother hunted. Um, Mender, as a grandmother, um, is really not necessarily the the prototype grandmother that you'll see conveyed. You know, she's a she was a an acclaimed biologist. She's, uh, you know, she's a rehabilitation a wildlife rehabilitator. Um, and her, her grandfather nicknamed her Mender when she was a kid after she, you know, helped a snowy owl. But oftentimes the older generation gets sidelined or relegated to um, irrelevance. And, and Mender is constantly praying about, about uh, everything. She just has this relationship in the natural world with the creator that isn't, it isn't in your face in the story, but you just see this woman who has developed this way of being that has built into her patience and a wisdom in dealing with uh, with her granddaughter that that uh, gives the girl a lot of room to explore and mm-hmm. to learn on her own. And Mender does mm-hmm. mess up because she accuses Celia of wrecking some stuff in the garden and, and that's alienating for them. But you see her rebound. And I just, I just think that watching these, the, the power of these relationships is very mending and realizing that you don't have to be so overt and uh, aggressive in, in your attempts or that one doesn't need to be in, in their attempts to, um, to help a situation that sometimes your presence, one's presence is enough. And that's certainly the case for Mender. Um, Burnaby, I just like that name. Um, <laughs> there was a there was a hired guy. My husband's a dairy veterinarian, and there was a hired guy at a farm he worked at whose name was Burnaby. And then we're close to Canada, and across the line, there's a town named Burnaby. And I just liked it. And it was only after the fact and after the fire that I go, oh yeah, it's Burn. <laughs> so that was a completely unintentional. Completely unintentional. Well, you know, Jung would say there's synchronicity and there's there's synchronicity in everything, and we just have to look for it and you know it's, it's see it. Yeah. That's it's. I just think it was it's so kind of um, it's a kind of a beautiful coincidence. You also um, have this character Cabot, who paradoxically is um, incredibly handsome, sexy. Um, well-built. So Celia, as a young girl, 15, 16 years old, she is drawn to him. So there's all of that overwhelming um, sort of adolescent lust going on and, you know, hormonal <laughs> you know, discharge. Oh, yeah. Just, you know, you can't tell the difference between feeling and uh, what your body is telling you to do. And, um, you know, she, she starts to realize that beauty isn't everything that Cabot has his own wounds and that he is, in fact, what I would call a pretty stereotypical narcissist. He's not interested in her as a person. He's interested in her as a reflection of his own, um, you know, handsome self and wants to make her his possession. I just wondered, through all of this, I mean, I happen to have read a little bit more of your background and you were a teacher um, in your career, were you not? And you were teacher of the year. And I wondered if some of these adolescent characters were taken from insights that you garnered while you were in the teaching environment. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, it's because these kids are sexually awakening at these at these ages, and they do equate those, um, you know, those physical feelings with with love and uh, especially young women will tend to idealize what their bodies are telling them and they really do misinterpret them. Um, I just saw so many times where these these 
kids would be attracted to one another and make decisions that um, where they, they bypassed all the red flags because these kids were so physically attractive. And, and so here's Cabot, who is just stunningly good-looking, and, and Celia also has a friend who has become quite promiscuous and has encouraged her to go that same route. And, and for Meredith, this friend, it's been a painkiller. Sex has been another drug for her. And Celia, of course, is experiencing a lot of pain, and to find this this outlet with Cabot, this potential outlet with Cabot as a relief, you know, for her, just just being with him um, makes her not think about the fact that she's, you know, that that she's been abandoned there at her grandmother's. And so, yeah, I I came alongside a number of young women over the years as I taught high school who were in situations like this. And it's nothing that you can really explain to them, but in coming alongside of them, you know, you, you just hope that they'll realize it before, mm-hmm. you know, before they make decisions that are going to lead them, lead them down a path that it would be difficult to return from. And so, uh, yeah. yeah, so it's Celia. Yeah, you know, but I, I, I like it that you recognized uh, Cabot's narcissism because he really... He he really wants her to mirror him. He doesn't hear her. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't care about what's important to her. Um, but she's caught up in the thrill. Absolutely. Um, and and then I wanted to go back to Aggie for a second. The ten year old, she she internalizes this pain of um, believing she set the fire, the shame of it, and she takes it into herself. And there is something called, you know, sort of negative narcissism or failure narcissism where you, you, you believe, um, you, you doubt your own significance as you might as an adolescent girl, um, uncertain of yourself. And then when the circumstances turn negative, like there's a disaster, then you bring it into yourself in a way where you've overstated your significance and you only correlate you know, yourself as, um, you know, a causal prime mover if something's wrong, you've done something wrong. So then she's at a point where, you know, the smallest thing, like dropping the milk and the cookies, reverberates with this trauma of the setting of the fire. Um, Talk to us about actually breaking those kinds of patterns and Forgiveness and really the themes of this book, healing. Hmm. Okay, where do I start with that? Let's see. Um, yes, it comes again to learning to recognize our belovedness and that we aren't we aren't alone and we aren't responsible for everything. We are not God. God is God, mm-hmm. and yet. From our earliest age, um, it's the human condition to believe that we have um, the. Well, let's see. How can I say this? Just, just to believe that we're responsible for more than we're responsible for, and then to um, disconnect from things that we really can solve. And that's a little bit vague, but. Mm-hmm. One illustration is that when I was when I was in my thirties, and you know, and I had a lot of stuff to work through because of things that I had experienced, and I was, I was, um, I was w- sitting with a um, counselor who was a really wise guy, and and I was talking about some of my parenting stuff because I'm trying to disentangle my history from, you know, from things that I didn't want to bring into my own parenting. And he said, you know, Cheryl, um, I've seen, uh, he said, he said, you really aren't, you aren't powerful enough to have, that's not how he said it. He said, he said, you. Yeah, I know what you mean. It, yeah, he said, he said, this is not all, this is not all up to you. There are so many influences that are going into these kids' lives and into your life. And for you to, to claim singular responsibility for their outcomes is, 
in a way, a type of narcissism. He didn't call it a type of narcissism, but with what you're identifying, it's this self-centeredness that that mm-hmm. is in all of us that that makes mm-hmm. us kind of believe that we can create our own little kingdoms. And mm-hmm. and it was it's immensely liberating to realize that that's not the case. That we have huge freedoms, we have tremendous freedoms, but it's in partnership, it's in community, it's in it's in relationship with God and with others. And uh, did I even did I even touch on your yeah. question there? Um, yes, so you in, absolutely. You you absolutely <sighs> did. You zeroed in on it, and we have just a couple minutes left. Um, and I, I really, I think that what you're talking about is tremendously important. Believing that we're the center of the universe and um, how we need to understand our relationship uh, in it and also our connection. So I am going to thank you, Cheryl Gray Bostrom, for being with us today and for bringing this book, Sugar Birds, into the world and we're going to leave it with the question of whether we're all sugar birds, our need for affection, and um, that they're a honey creeper that feeds on nectar. So are we all sugar birds? But thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Diane. Loved every minute. I did, too. And we have Cheryl uh, has social media handles on Instagram, Cheryl Gray Bostrom, Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and a website, showbostrom.com. Thanks also to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producers, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and stay connected to others and to yourself. And as Aggie said, it was too much energy remaining hidden. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.